Hi, everyone. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Regare Gomo. Regare was born in the UK, grew up in Zimbabwe, and came to Australia on his own as a teenager to study. He has run his own corporate law firm and was the founder and director of the Gomo Foundation, an award-winning not-for-profit organisation which provided education scholarships for African women. He now dedicates his life to making a difference in other people's lives through high-performance life and business coaching. Welcome, Regare, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be with you, Kate and Julia. Thank you for the opportunity. So you have had a remarkable story of how you came to be in Australia, and we'd really love you to share that with us. Sure. That's such an open-ended question. The story is so huge. So maybe I'll start by creating some context. I grew up in Zimbabwe. My mum and my dad, you could say, were poor or low income in Zimbabwe. And, you know, below that would have been very poor, in essence. Both my parents were social workers. So my mum was a nurse and then did HIV AIDS education in Zimbabwe. And then my dad was part of a, you could say, a Christian organization, but their focus was on street kid programs, family counseling, and youth leadership development programs. So I grew up in a context of service, seeing my mom and my dad of service. And my home was an utter melting pot. <laughs> People from all walks of life would come to our home because they would always come to my mom and my dad because my mom and my dad were safe and were non-judgmental inside of a very conservative, you know, African society. So if somebody became pregnant or a teenage girl became pregnant, they would come to my family home and discuss that with my mom and my dad. Um, I've had street kids come and stay in our home. So anytime there was some social issue that you could say was an affront to our society, the place you go to is... Rosemary and Napoleon Gomo. <laughs> so I was literally exposed to being a person that's welcoming and being inclusive from um, the day I was born. I don't remember a time not being that or our home not being that. Why this is important is people would then come and volunteer with my mom or my dad's organization from different parts of the world. So we'd sometimes have Australians or the British, New Zealanders, Canadians, Americans you know, come and volunteer. And as a child, I always loved the visits. <laughs> it was so much fun because this was like my access to meeting people from different cultures from the other side of the world. Because for me, I, that was going to be an impossibility. There was no way that I could ever think of really going to visit Australia or visiting America. But we had them come and visit us. And so that was always really exciting to have those visits or the people come and stay with us and work with my mom and my dad. So one of those people was Andrew. I call him Uncle Andrew. He's Australian. And he came and visited when I was five years old. Loved his time in Zimbabwe so much that he started his own travel agency in Australia and would bring Australians through the African continent and typically would come and visit our home in Zimbabwe. And every time we knew Uncle Andrew was coming, oh my God, I, would, I barely would sleep. I would nag my mom and my dad, when is he coming? Now, remember in those days for me growing up, there was no phone lines. We didn't have a phone at all. It was all by, by hand letter written. And so um, it would take months for letters to get into Zimbabwe. So all of this organizing was done at that time by hand. 
kind of crazy. And also, growing up in Zimbabwe, you can't rely on any of the transport being on time. So you could arrive on a Monday thinking the person's going to, you know, going to come, you know, go, arrive in the country on a Monday, catch a train from the capital city Harare to Mutare, where I grew up. And that could take three days. They might take, be there in three days' time or five days. You never know. You never know when they're going to rock up. <laughs> so it was always an adventure. Eagerly waiting by the door. Yes. <laughs> so having Andrew come to Zimbabwe regularly allowed us to create a relationship with him. And when I was 14 years old, I had the courage to write a letter and ask him if I could come to Australia to pursue the opportunity of a new life. And that was the crossroad for me. Just extraordinary at 14 to have the courage to do that. Yeah, and why did I do that? So for me, growing up in Zimbabwe, there were very limited opportunities in Zimbabwe. That's number one. So growing up, I always knew that I had to do my O-levels or my A-levels, which is, you know, in Australia, the year 10 and year 12, but they're highly competitive, highly, highly competitive. So for a population of 15 million people trying to compete to enter into two universities in the entire country, the University of Zimbabwe and NAST. So imagine, you know, Victoria, I don't know what the population of Victoria is, 5 million Victoria has maybe a population of 5 million, but has over eight universities. Mm. So imagine a population of 15 million and the two universities to enter into. And to enter into university meant the opportunity of a good life. So becoming a lawyer, becoming a doctor, becoming an engineer was everything that was every family wanted their children to be, because that meant a new life, a new future a life worth living. So it was very competitive. And I didn't feel that I was that person at all. Like to be able to make that decision of who I want to be, I had I had no idea. All I just wanted to do was read my books and play still. <laughs> so, <laughs> But that was not what was acceptable in my cultural context. The other thing as well was that I grew up in a family that fostered reading. So I was always immersed in books but the books I read are probably books you guys never read because they were the old school books from the 1930s because we had only one library in my city and the books were from the colonial books so I read books like the Beagles, the Warrows, the Gimlet like that might be like you guys may have no idea what I'm talking about but if I met somebody in their 80s and 90s they'll be like the Jim Gimlet and the Warrows you know, <laughs> I really connected people in the 80s and 90s. They're my people. <laughs> That's so amazing, Rugari. And I mean, education was obviously always, you know, such uh, an important thing to you and such an important factor in you coming to Australia. So then once you came to Australia, I'd love to hear a bit more about your kind of journey here, but also what then inspired you to start the, the GOMO Foundation and how did that come about? So, you know, getting to Australia took over two years, you know, raising the money and getting into a, into a school for year 11, year 12. Um, so once I got to Australia, I was 16 years old. And though I speak English, it was like entering into a whole new world. <laughs> I'd never used a microwave before. That was just not something we had at home. So to be able to put food in a microwave and heat it up, that was very foreign for me. 
And also, there's a thing called a washing machine. What? <laughs> you used to hand washing all my clothes. <laughs> there's a dishwasher. So you mean I don't have to wash the plates by hand every night? That is like so foreign for me. So the one that was like radical was dedicated internet. Like you just go home and there's internet all the time. That was just in Zimbabwe. We had dial up at that time. This is 2001 in my, in our home. And so to have dedicated internet, that's just like beyond exorbitant. So coming to Australia for me, it's like, oh my God, everybody is wealthy. It's just like in the books. I thought, I thought. (laughs) So my experience was that it was a completely different culture, though I spoke the language. And also because, as I mentioned, in Zimbabwe, the kinds of books that I read, you could say the books I was reading were from the 19th century. So I had an expectation of what Australia would be, that everybody is sitting down for dinner um, and has table conversations formally. That was not what was happening at all. Um, I had the expectation that Every single person goes to university and loves to study. And that was not the, the case at all. So for me, I had friends who wanted to learn to be a plumber or an electrician, and I could not fathom, like, why would you live in Australia and choose to be an electrician because, or a plumber? Because in Zimbabwe, if you were in the trades, that meant you're going to be of a lower socioeconomic background and have less opportunities. What I didn't know is that some electricians, many electricians were earning more money than lawyers. No idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Highly sought after. So it was a completely different context, different world. So I was bringing my notions of what I could have gathered from the books I'd read, a little bit of TV, into my first few years in being in Australia. So it wasn't always easy, but I really embraced the opportunity. But the person you're talking to today wasn't the person who arrived. I had very low self-esteem and didn't know it. Because now in Australia, I'm coming into a predominantly white community. And now I'm the only black person in a practically all-white community. So at the school I went to, I was the only black person in the entire school from prep all the way to year 12. Where previously, you know, I would have been part of a group of predominantly black people and maybe one or two white people at school. Mm. So I stood out. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) But then growing up in Zimbabwe, some of the core beliefs that we are raised in, spoken and unspoken, are things like it's a white man's world. White is better than black. Um, as a black person, I have to work 10 times harder than my, a white person. So for me, all those conversations are things that are um, have me see myself as less than anybody else. But I had never recognized them as that mm. because I've only lived and breathed them from the moment I was born, in essence. But coming to Australia really highlighted the negative conversations I had about myself. So I had to really push through that. So the person you're talking to wasn't the person who would look in your eyes and have a conversation. So if a white person was talking to me, I'd be like, hello, quiet voice, look down. 
to the side. Because I didn't want anybody to feel they had a reason not to give me an opportunity because I'm less than. So I really spent a lot of my time and my life concealing who I truly am. And that's horrible. <laughs> but inside of the vision of creating a new life in Australia, I had to work through my limiting beliefs. So my family could not afford for me to go to university. So to go to university would have cost me over $120,000 a year to do $120,000 for six years. So that's $20, about $20,000 every single year. And I had to raise that myself as a 17, 18 year old person in a foreign country with a very limited network. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Like, how do you even make that happen? It's crazy. It's crazy. And I want to just highlight this because it's really important in, you know, how to make things, making a difference to, to people. And, you know, I had my job at McDonald's, so I'd work every summer, work really hard at McDonald's, save my money. And then I had families from my school who chose to contribute thousands of dollars for my university. That was really overwhelming. So remember, I have low self-esteem and I don't think I'm worthy. Then a person is willing to donate $5,000 every year for my education just because I'm a human being. Not because I have any you know, good grades, not because I'm an A++ student, but just because I exist. That was really confronting. I could not process that, that there were people, that people are willing to support another person. That was mind-blowing for me. So it really had me reflect on what it means to be a human being and some of the things, the criteria we put out there to support people, you know, which is linked to what I'll talk about later about the Goma Foundation as well. Mm. And in addition, I did not really have a voice for myself. You know, I had very low self-esteem. So even when I finished my year 12, I missed out um, to go to Monash Law by 0.35 points. And I was ready to give up. But there was this lady, Margaret Kennedy. She heard about my story. Um, she was a stay-at-home mom. Her son was also at the same school. And she drove me. She said, nope, we're going to go to Monash University. Let's go and figure this out. And she was my voice. Went to Monash University, explained the situation, um, that I wanted to do law. And they were like, actually, we, we haven't filled up all our places. And there's still many places for me, to for international students to do law. And I was able to do law because she did use her time and her voice to ask the questions. That changed my life. Margaret Kennedy, stay home mum. And we live in a society where we sometimes think that I need to do more, join a charity or, you know, help more people outside. But sometimes it's just being present to the everyday problems or situations our family, our friends and community are having that can really change their life and put them on a different course. But we're not connected to that. And Margaret changed my life because now I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and as a lawyer, I've been then able to get a really good job when I practiced law and support myself and support my communities. She did that. She did that. So 
you know, when I then started the Gomo Foundation um, down the track, what is really important for me, you know, Gomo is my surname, G-O-M-O, and we just created a tagline, giving others more opportunities. That's what it was all about, giving others more opportunities. Not giving more others more opportunities because they had A++ records. We just wanted to give others more opportunities because they're human. And so, you know, we focused firstly on girls in Zimbabwe because many girls in Zimbabwe were and are denied an education when families don't have the resource. And we chose a school called Emmanuel High School uh, where my grandmother grew up because she herself was denied an education. So to honor my grandmother, we thought we'd start our first projects in really the land where she herself was denied opportunity. And that was such a growing experience for me, you know. And to just to hear the girls' stories, our first girl, Malisatsi, um, she did year seven, um, and she came from a very dysfunctional family, and she was so shy, so quiet. And to see her blossom from year seven to year 12 was amazing. She finished when she did her year 10. She got, I think it was like seven A's and a few B's. And in Zimbabwe, like to get even five A's is like already like the top of your game in your O levels for year 10. But she just crushed it. And then for her A levels, she got um, two A's and a B. She just crushed, she just crushed it because she had an opportunity. You know, and then there was this girl, Cecilia, um, who supported a girl to go through university as well. And she was literally living on food handouts when I heard her story because her family could not afford for her to go to university. And then, she, you know, the Goma Foundation supported her to go to university, four years of an accounting degree. And this is what it was about. It wasn't just about the education, but it was about empowerment. Mm-hmm. So for us, the Goma Foundation wasn't an opportunity is an access to empowerment, but also empowerment to be able to make different life choices. So for girls, you know, I know I'm a man. I hope I'm not mansplaining, but this is my real lived experience. I'm not trying to explain something. I'm just trying to share my experience of it is girls without an education would typically then get married off early. Then they're having children before even some of their, their body is formed. That's just completely unacceptable. Girls with an education are able to are in school longer. They get to develop longer. They're able to learn about their body. They're able to make choices about their own sexuality. So it's a game changer. It's literally a game changer. But one of the, my favorite things about Cecilia uh, that she shared with me was that at one stage when she'd finished her degree, she got a job in the city. I actually grew up in, in Mutare. But the boss wanted sexual favors. And she said no. She says, I've got my degree and I can find a new job. So she left that company and created a new opportunity for herself in Harare. Now, this is inside of a society where over 95% of the people are unemployed. And she had the freedom and the empowerment to say no. That is what I lived for. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, Rigari, thank you so much for sharing that all with us. And I really love the different perspective you've brought to the idea of making a difference. And as you said, it's not just about necessarily really doing things and, and taking specific actions, but it can be 
as simple as really listening to the people around you, being present, connecting and thinking about what you can, you know, helping them, helping empower them, helping people have a voice. Yeah, I think it's so such a beautiful way to make a difference and so important as well. Such a good reminder. Yeah, it's it's lovely. And I think, I, I you know, what I really like about the the genesis of the GOMO Foundation as sort of phase one of your making a difference in life is that you built on the opportunity that others gave you and your whole the giving others more opportunity um, as your tagline for the GOMO Foundation really built on what happened to you and it's it's a, it's really about giving back which is which is just beautiful. One of the things I'm interested though for this podcast is to understand if there were any challenges along the way for you with the GOMO, with developing the GOMO Foundation and, and how you sort of navigated that journey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> Detail. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> so one of the first challenges was that I had to get over myself, first and foremost. <laughs> I had to get over that I'm a black gay man and the idea that I'm not a credible person because I'm a migrant. So that was actually, you could say the first barrier right right there was myself. My relationship with myself was an absolute barrier. And also the perception that to be able to make a difference, I needed to be a millionaire or billionaire to start a foundation. I'm not. I was in my late 20s just starting out my life in essence. So I had to figure out how I can fulfill on my vision, though I may not have the monetary resources for that. And so so those were the first two major barriers, my relationship with myself and resourcing. And so what I really got for myself was I had to really see myself as a valuable person and love myself. It actually helped me elevate loving myself because if I didn't love myself, the other girls, they ain't got time to wait. Like their their circumstances are changing. So I had to literally get over myself. It became not, it became not important. <laughs> yeah, there was so much shame, wasn't there? Completely. There was so much at stake. These are real people's lives desperate for opportunities, smart girls. They didn't even have to be smart. They're just human beings that without an opportunity, their path in life was going to go haywire. Mm-hmm. So I was very, and I am very connected to that because of all the amazing women in my life. My mom, my grandmother, they really demonstrated the pain of not having an opportunity. I'm very, so for me, I'm very connected to pain. And the other thing is I'm not a wealthy man, but my community was and is wealthy. So I had to learn to be vulnerable. <laughs> so inside of resourcing the Gomo Foundation, I just shared the girl's story and made bold requests for what I was asking. So, and it looked like different ways of things. So. Sometimes it was money, you know, and people have money. Many people have money. We're in Australia, after all. Many people have money and many people want to help. So I had to be vulnerable to actually ask for help. 
and ask for help for a cause because it was greater than me. And also sometimes it wasn't about money, but it was about creating a team. So finding the right board. So for me, I knew that I was, you know, in my late 20s. What do I know about philanthropy? Nothing. I'm as green as they come. So it was like I created a wisdom council. So I created a wisdom council of some of Melbourne's, you know, top business people, shared my vision and made a request that they become part of my wisdom council. People who were able to give me advice because they have experience and knowledge inside of what I'm out to create. You could say I built my own team of mentors in essence. Game changer. <laughs> Game changer. Mm. Because then I'm not in this alone. The other thing was having good friends. So I have my oldest friend, her name is Jess, and we've been friends since the 3rd of March 2003. And my friendship with her is one where we don't we don't conspire to buy in each other's bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word. And <laughs> and practically she pushed me in a healthy way to pursue bringing the Goma Foundation to life because she could see that I was connected to it. So she really took a stand for me to take the actions consistent to bringing the Goma Foundation to life as well. So as you can see, inside of nearly all my barriers, what I created was community. So there's, the Goma Foundation is not about me. It became about everybody involved. The Wisdom Council took ownership of it. The board took ownership of it. The people who were receiving the scholarships took ownership of, of it. It was bigger than me. So that investment came from different angles. So creating that community of like-minded people, people just wanting to make a difference and do good in the world was a game changer. But I had to learn to be vulnerable and ask for help. And, and as you said, get over yourself. <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> and see that it was bigger than you, you know, which I think is a really great point to bring up that I think so many people get stuck in that phase of and they don't get over themselves and they stay small and they don't, you know, they don't take the action, you know, to get off the fence and, and make a difference in, in any way because they get stuck in that space. Yeah. I work with many working mums, you know, in my in one of my loves of expressing my life as a high performance life and business coach. And many working moms are wanting to do it all. They want to raise the children, go to work, be a good wife, do charity. And it's really overwhelming. I'm like, I, I experience overwhelm just listening to what's going on there. And one of the things I say is that being a mom is one of the biggest games you could ever play on earth. Not necessarily running a business, being a mom. Because you're raising children, conscious leaders, the next generation, and participants of society. What, what greater game is there? than that. And so I sometimes think that having perspective of, you know, what we already have and what we have at stake can completely shift what we think we want to be doing out there to make a difference. So for me, I feel in running my company, my company must be a space 
where working moms have the space to raise the ne- our next generation. It's critical. Hmm. It's really critical, but it's that perspective. So I love what you say about exploring this concept of what making a difference means to different people and and bringing motherhood as a really great example as to how a lot of mothers make a fundamental difference but maybe not always sort of um, see it because they're sort of stuck in the grind of it and and I think our society um, really does glorify the making a business as something bigger than just in inverted commas looking after kids Um, and and I think it's so important to sort of explore that and sit in that space it's very rewarding especially as a mother myself so (laughs) thank you and I like that you referred to motherhood as raising or parenthood as raising young leaders because it's just this idea of being a parent it's so important to think about the values that you instill in your child it must be very stressful to be honest I'm glad I don't have to do that (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking about nothing I know of (laughs) Leave it to the professionals. (laughs) I would love to turn the conversation um, to your coaching business and for you to, I guess, tell us a little bit about more about the coaching business and how how you make a difference or how your clients you know make a difference in that space. Thank you so much. So my primary purpose is to inspire and empower all people, all people to unreservedly be the author of their life. Unreservedly, unreservedly. And my vision is all people to live a wondrous life. Beautiful. And that's really important to me. I think for us as human beings, what I'm learning is we're born in a context where there is the, I should be a certain way. You know, I, as I'm a black gay man. And I grew up in a context called I should be straight, get married to a woman and have children. I don't want any of that. That's not who I am at all. I grew up in a context where um, having a profession like being a lawyer or a doctor is like the highest regard. But I don't want to remain that. So even like setting up my own business was very challenging for some people in my community because then I stopped being a lawyer, you know, that, that esteem. But what I'm really connected to is being part of people's lives and helping them forging their own path to be the author of their life. So I feel that for many of us, there are many constraints in being free. And my job is to remove the shackles not the chuckles, the shackles. <laughs> we want you to keep the chuckles, but we're removing the shackles. And this shows up in all societies, whether it's being in Australia, or being in Zimbabwe, being in the UK, being in Afghanistan. You know, I work with people from all walks of life, all nationalities, all sexual orientations, and it's the same thing. Um, how do I start living what's inside of me? rather than the expectations of society or the expectations of school, the expectations of friends and stuff. So my job is to help people discover who they've always been inside and take action to live congruent to that. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's so incredible, Rugari, and it just must be so hard to work with people from all different backgrounds and time and time again just find other ways to empower them. And I'm curious to know a bit more about this process and how, like, what is the magic, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like, what's the magic answer? Um, But, yeah, what is the process involved and do you find that you have to kind of take a different approach each time or is there sort of a similar process that works for everyone? So it's so interesting. And thank you for asking this question. I haven't talked about this for a very long time. So my experience is that we're all the same. Like all human beings are exactly the same. I have fear. You have fear. I have dreams. You have dreams. Mm -hmm. So the things I failed at, the things you failed at, the things I've stuffed up at, the things you stuffed up at. Mm -hmm. That's what it is to be human. So inside of it, the process is the same. The angle I come about it may be slightly different. But the first thing I help people see is to distinguish really what the context of being human is. That's the first Mm -hmm. tool. Literally, all of us are born into a context of what it means to be human. The moment we're born, we're born in a context of the world of morality. Good, bad, right, wrong. Good, bad, right, wrong. So it's like, what a beautiful baby. Girls, good girls cross their legs. A good boy never cries. Like the moment we're born into the world, we're already born into a structure that isn't our own. Nobody asked me if crossing my legs is good or bad. Nobody asked me if crying is good and bad. I was told that. Mm-hmm. So all human beings are programmed the moment they're born mm-hmm. through education through parents, friends, society, of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. I call that the world of morality. This world of morality has served humanity, but it can also be oppressive as well. So I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying what we are born into at some point in time has served humanity but it might not serve you anymore. So my job is to help you look at why you think what you think. Is what you think your own thoughts or is that somebody else's standard and ideal of who you should be? That's where a lot of pain comes in. So for me, I'll give you on on the court how that looks like. I was born in a society that it's good to be a straight man and get married to a woman and have kids. So imagine, this is how I used my life, Julianne Kate, just awful. I used my life, first of all, just already knowing that being being gay, that is just wrong and evil. Like, it's evil, not even just wrong, it's evil. And I remember spending a lot of my time trying to talk in a deeper voice because nobody should ever, ever suspect that I'm not a real man. I remember spending a lot of time trying to walk like a straight man, whatever that means. And I had so much stress and anxiety because I was trying to live out somebody else's idea of who I should be. That's trauma. That's another way said, I hope this may get edited. That's fucked up (laughs) the level I went to 
um, change myself to fit into somebody else's idea of who I should be. And that caused lots of health issues, anxiety, stress, choices in my life and in relationships that were toxic. I lived a double life for decades because I was too scared to be myself. So when I am living out somebody else's ideas, expectations, standards and ideals of me, it leads to deep pain and trauma. So my job is that people never have to live like that again. There is another way. There is another way. And it's okay to live who you, your, who you are authentically. So that's the concept of it. The practice can be harder. Because the inquiry then has us ask the question, who am I for the first time if I am not this? I had to ask myself before I really stepped into being a high performance life and business coach. I had to give up the identity of being a lawyer. My law firm was robbing me of freedom. It was actually making a loss. But I had this idea that being a lawyer has reputation. You know, my parents are able to tell their friends I'm a lawyer. You know, it's great for the community. Another black person has made it. It's bullshit. And I was in so much pain. But I had to figure out and have the courage to let go of that identity entirely. So letting go of an identity that I've invested a lot of time, money, and emotion leads to grief and pain. And so my job is to help people lose and give up the inauthentic identity, hold space for them going through their pain, and build them up in who they've always needed to be. I'm not, I don't tell people who they are. People already know in their heart. My job is to listen for it and reflect it back to them. Sounds like the most amazing job in the world. <laughs> I love it. Full <laughs> <laughs> disclosure, I've done coaching with Regari for a number of years and he is incredible at what he does. Yeah. And I think, you know, the example that you use of being a gay man in a country where um, that's illegal and, and definitely not supported by society is a powerful one. And I think, you know, it's equally powerful with the smaller ones, the smaller examples of where you decide to um, remove this a concept of good, bad, right or wrong. Um, I know that it's brought incredible pain to my life in in that judgment of um, am, am I good? Am I am I is this bad? Am I doing the right thing? Or am I right? Or is he wrong? And you know, in all your relationships and the freedom that it brings to um, remove that um, while challenging because that's how we've been brought up is the freedom is incredible. Um, and I'm very, yeah, very grateful to have learned that from you. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You're, you've been amazing in that journey. <laughs> thank you. Now, can we talk and get your insights into how you would define making a difference? You started to talk about it a little bit um, in different in, in a different context, but what's your views on how you make a difference and I guess continue to expand in your experience of the challenges that people face in wanting to make a difference? So interesting question. It's, I feel like that's a complicated question. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> well, and, and, I, and I wonder too if people, and this is why I wanted to ask you because I know you've got some interesting views on it, but also yes. 
I feel like people can be very narrow in their definition of making a difference and that it needs to be these big gestures and um, and we have interviewed quite a few people who are doing amazing things and, and they've shared their journeys and it's just been incredible. But, you know, each of them has come from just taking one step after another and, and you know, so I'd really love your insights into it. Yeah, this is my view, making a difference. I think I want to try and define it from what every, most people think about it. People, I think most of us human beings think making a difference is something we do externally. So, for example, like making a difference to a girl in Zimbabwe or making a difference to the rescued dog. It's something that's something we do externally. And making a difference for me is about empowerment, first and foremost. So when I think of making a difference, I think of empowerment. Because making it so giving money to somebody may not make a difference to their life. I'll give you an example. You hear these stories all the time. Somebody has won the lottery, they've won 150 million dollars, but over time they, they become bankrupt and their life is worse off than if they hadn't had that 150 million dollars. So for me, that's not making a difference. Giving money to somebody. Even starting a charity with good intentions may actually make a situation worse than better. So when I think about making a difference, I'm thinking about is does this forward empowerment or does that detract from empowerment? That's one of one of my ways of thinking about it. I'm not saying the way I think about it is right. It's just one of my ways of thinking about it. And then... Making a difference has to start with our relationship with ourselves first. So for me, I've really discovered that if I want more love in the world, I better bloody love myself. It starts with me. When I fully am in lo love with myself, by the way, I'm not saying like I'm fully always in love with myself, but when there is space for loving myself, my capacity for love to show up around, it goes up exponentially. So one of the, the challenges in the Gomo Foundation, as an example, is because I didn't have much resources, I also at one point was looking after the girls first before looking after me. Dangerous, very dangerous place because then they're competing demands here. It's like, how am I going to look after myself and the girls? It's very stressful, which then impacts on my thinking, which then impacts on my family, which then impacts on my community. So for me, making a difference always has to be about, am I empowered first before going out there? So that's really, really critical. Um, and that can be confronting. Now, I also know that there are people who use making the difference to fill in a whole about themselves like this like that's something that's missing or because they may feel like they're not enough or low self-esteem and thinking that by maybe making a donation is going to fill the hole it ain't gonna happen you'll have temporary happiness but it's not sustainable hence why it's going to be really important in investing in you being empowered first before going out empowering everybody else so a lot of my time believe it or not, as a high performance life and business coach is 
bringing workability and empowerment to my life. That's why I'm able to do what I'm able to do and I'm able to give it away to so many because I'm empowered first. When I've tried doing this from lack of empowerment, it has led to me being homeless and close to bankruptcy, sleeping on my friend's floor, being fed for over nine months. So I, I know firsthand that the two modes of making a difference with a good heart, good intention, but not empowered, and the difference it makes when I'm empowered. It's very different. It's kind of like making a, it's like powering a house. One can power a house with coal, fossil fuel, or powering your house with clean energy. I choose clean energy. And that's called being empowered first. That's my view. Amazing. I love that. Well, Gary, thank you so much for all of that. It's been amazing to hear. Just before we finish up, I just wanted to ask whether there was anything else that you wanted to share with people who are wanting to make a difference or any tips for helping people find that sense of self-empowerment that you've spoken about so much. Thank you. So for me, what I want everybody to be left with is that you matter and you are already enough. You matter and you already are enough. That's what I want everybody to know. And everything else that you're dealing with, you may be feeling depressed, you may be feeling burnt out, you may be feeling lots of fear. Those feelings do pass and you matter and you are already enough. And there's lots of help and people out there who wants to connect with you so that you live your best life today, not tomorrow, today. So if you're going through stuff, please do reach out. Don't deal with it alone. You matter and you are enough. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, so powerful. What a beautiful place to end. Rikare, thank you so much for sharing your amazing insights and um, bringing a, a different bent to our podcast so you want to make a difference. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kate and Julia. Thanks for the privilege and the platform to use my voice and share my heart with you all. Thank you so much, Rigari. It's been an absolute privilege as well. My heart just feels very, very warm leaving this conversation. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Welcome. Bye. Kate, that was such an amazing recording. I think it's been my favorite one to date. I just found Regare so inspiring and incredible. Me too. I just love listening to Regare speak in his sort of philosophy on life and everything. It's really special. Yeah. So, what was your um, first takeaway? My first takeaway was the story of mothers and the families helping Regare when he needed it when he was at school. Um, it really brought tears to my eyes because it's just such a beautiful reminder of how good people can be. And as he said, it's not because he was special or was an amazing student, but he was just at that point in time just a human in need. Uh, and I really just loved being connected to how good people are and that they exist out in the community. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That was one of mine too. Um, I think it's such an important um, reminder that everyone deserves to feel worthy um, just because they exist and they are human. And it's a reminder that we're all human. We're all the same. We all have fears and dreams. Um, and so everyone deserves to be empowered. 
And so also just connected to that is this idea of the importance of giving people a voice. Um, And as you said, someone doing this for Brigari just had such a massive impact on his life. And I just really liked how he highlighted the importance of being present to the everyday problems of people in our community and making a difference can be as simple as that, just being present and making sure we're connecting with those around us. We don't have to always be looking so far away. If we're aware of people's situations around us and we're present, we can see how we can help that and that can just have a huge impact in itself. Yeah, 100%. I think Regare's definition of making a difference doesn't have to be that grand gesture, which we've, you know, which the people we've interviewed before have have kind of done. And it's been amazing and, and so awe-inspiring to see what they've done. But it's really important for people to remember that it can just be the the smile or the you know being friendly to a neighbor or helping someone that's having a tough day I know at um, my kids school they do meal trains for parents that are struggling and it makes the world of difference for them but it's you know it's not a grand gesture on my behalf to just make an extra meal and drop it off so um, I really liked that I think it's really important that we remember that And the last one that I had was the work on yourself first so you can get out of your own way. You know, I think that just resonated with me so strongly. I think back to when we first started talking about this podcast and it would have taken us a good year of sort of talking and planning and thinking about it. And that was partly because we were working out what we wanted to do. But also there was definitely element for both of us that we were nervous about doing that and we were self-doubting and it took us a while to get the courage up to do it. So that was a big one for me. I really liked hearing, I really liked hearing Regare's experience on that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I could really relate to that one too. I think a lot of people um, would be able to relate with that. And yeah, talking about it in the context of starting this podcast, for instance, this idea of your relationship uh, with yourself being a barrier um, was very present. And it's so easy when you're thinking about making a difference to compare yourself to others and to kind of get stuck in your head. And as he said, you need to to get over yourselves, um, to get over yourself. And I loved this idea of, like, I often think about the importance of being self-aware and knowing what matters to you in the context of making a difference. But he really got me thinking about the idea of uh, self-empowerment. And that's just such an important step. Um, Self-love and seeing yourself as a valuable person first is integral for you can sort of empower others so I just thought that was such an important part of the definition of making a Mm. difference Mm. Um, how um, he said that you know it starts with us and loving ourselves and then you just have more of that capacity to share your love and you also are doing it for the right reasons as we touched on before you're not looking to fill a hole and I think that when you're doing it in that when you're making a difference in that way it's a lot more sustainable and not as short-lived. Yep, 100%. Yeah, beautiful. Well said. I agree, 100%. Very lucky to have had that conversation with him. Very grateful for his time. Yeah, me too. Absolutely loved it. Um, And I hope that all the listeners enjoy it too. (laughs) Me too. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Bye, Kate.